I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 62, where we find our scripture reading this morning, Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. You know, the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Dulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who lives beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. 
As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Genesis 38 is one of those passages that um, many people, many pastors find difficult to preach. And strangely enough, I've had the privilege to now preach it to you twice. I don't know if it's because I'm just asking for a hard time or, or what it might be. I had the, the, I had the thought that since I preached Genesis 38 again and we're going through Genesis, that I could just skip over and get to the story, Joseph's story, because that's, I mean, that's the more fun one, right? But I thought it might be important for us to see, to get a sense of why there is this chapter, Genesis 38, right here in the middle of Joseph's story. Right here after we hear this cliffhanger that Joseph's been sold by his, his brothers into slavery, that he's arrived in Egypt. And before we get back to the story of Joseph, of what's going on in Joseph's life, why do we have this story, Genesis 38? Well, we need to remind ourselves that as Genesis 37 began, we were told Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. And as is often the case with these Toledotes or these books or the accounts of these people in Genesis, that the account of Jacob means the account of Jacob's children. And so not only do we hear of Joseph's prominent role in the story of Jacob, the Jacob's children, but we also need to hear about the transformation and the change that's happening with the position of Judah. We'll find out later that as uh, uh, Jacob is dying, he's giving his children blessing, that Jacob will give a very, very interesting uh, blessing to Judah, uh, a blessing that's important for us to take account to about how these people are going to come about, the history of these people and what's going to occur in their lives and what's going to happen in these different tribes. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's blessing to Judah is, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to, to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And so, what's happened already, right, in the lives of Jacob's children? Well, we hear already about Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. He's the one that's supposed to have the double inheritance. Not only the inheritance, but the honor, right? Well, Reuben has lost that honor because recently we heard that Reuben slept with Jacob's other wife, Bilhah. And so Jacob later, when he'll give his blessing, will mention this. Reuben, you are my firstborn, but you've lost the honor because you came into my bed and you should not have done that. Well, what are the other brothers? Simeon. Levi, 
What's happened with them? Well, we heard about Simeon and Levi with the Shechemites, right? The horrible thing that they did. They tricked those Shechemites. And even though they were seeking to honor their, do- their sister who was raised by, by Shechem, um, they did this horrible uh, thing. Their, 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 their reputation is associated with violence. And so there you have the firstborn, the secondborn, the thirdborn. And now we have the fourthborn, Judah. And the question is, is Judah going to play take this place of honor? Is he going to take this place of prominence um, in amongst the, the tribes of Israel and amongst the sons of Jacob? And so Judah in Genesis chapter 37 seems to have the sway of his brothers, right? He has this great idea. He says in Genesis chapter 37, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Look, I see these Ishmaelites coming. Let's not lay our hands on our brother. Let's not kill him. With the, he's our own flesh and blood. Let's sell him into slavery. And they all listened to him. His brothers listened to Judah. So that's the reputation we have of Judah so far, is that his brothers listened to him, but his ideas, mm, they're not good. And here we hear more about Judah in Genesis chapter 38. And it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. What is being communicated through Genesis chapter 38 is much of what's being communicated also through Genesis chapter 37 on in the story of Joseph. And that is that God can bring about His gracious purposes through the acts of sinful people. God can bring about His gracious purposes through the acts of of sinful people. So let's look at the first point together. The first point I want us to look at is verses 1 through 5. It's the descent of Judah. We read in the very first verse that around the time Joseph was sold in Egypt, Judah did a number of things which express a downward spiral and an abandonment of the promises of God given to Abraham. First, we're told that he left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Left his brothers, should not be passed over quickly. It would be uncommon in those days for a member of a family to separate himself from his family group, unless he was doing something he knew would be disapproved of. So the contrast here is obvious. Joseph forcibly removed from his family, but what Judah is doing here is a voluntary and obviously an act of Going away from his family's ways, a disobedience. It's not only that he left, but where he went when he left. We're told that he went down. He went down. This is not only a geographical term, but it's a literary term. It's representing his moral decline. If you're not convinced by that, the author goes on to say that he turned aside. The the Hebrew here is that he turned aside. He went down to stay with a man of Adullah, but the Hebrew literally is saying turned aside. To this man. The NIV NIV translates it to stay with. This Hebrew verb is rarely used in the context of visiting a person or a place, but it's often used figuratively as someone deviating from the path of righteousness. What Judah is doing here is simple. He's abandoning his people to fraternize with the Canaanites. Not only does he make friends with this Hira gentleman, but we're also told that he marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, or Bathsheba. The Hebrew here says very interesting words. Judah saw her and took her. 
Judah saw this woman and took her. These words in the narrative of Genesis often denote an illicit taking. Think of Samson's encounters with Philistine women. He saw them and he took them. This gives the idea that Judah knew that what he was doing was forbidden, but he did it anyway. Think of what happens in the garden. The woman saw that the fruit was good for eating and she took it. Later on, in a very similar story that has to do with another woman named Tamar, David's son will see his sister Tamar and take her. These are not good words. These are not pretty words being used here. So this is further displaying his moral descent. We already know earlier in the Genesis narrative that when Isaac's son Esau took Canaanite women to be his wives, that it left a bad taste in their mouths. It brought trouble into the family. So this is not good. Well, what exactly is going to come of this union between Judah and this Canaanite woman? Well, we're told very quickly that three sons are born, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And we're told seemingly randomly the location of only the third son's birth, Kaziv, is where Shelah was born. But why is this detail given about the location of Shelah's birth? Why not tell us where the other two sons were born? Well, Kaziv means town of lies. The narrator then is foreshadowing Judah's future lies about giving Shelah to Tamar in marriage when he's old enough. So that's the descent of Judah. Judah is going away from. In fact, we'll find out, well, you find out that this Adullam, this place that Judah stays at, is very much on the edge of the promised land. It's almost like Judah is toying with, he's playing with this idea of maintaining his identity with the promised chosen people, the covenant people. Or becoming, intermarrying, losing his identity, his distinction, uh, a, a difference with the world, and becoming part of the Canaanite people. Well, the second point is the desperation of Tamar. This is where Tamar enters into the story, verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Her name means palm tree. It's a word used in the Song of Solomon to describe a beautiful figure. Her name also would have denoted fruitfulness, something she would not experience in her marriage at all, the ability to give children. And we read in verse 7 the striking phrase that Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And not only have we seen the descent of Judah and turning aside to the Canaanite way of life, but in this moment we get the idea that things are, are much worse than we thought. That Judah's descent away from the Israelite way of life, his descent away from the chosen people, and his uh, commingling with the Canaanites has even caused the influence of his children, the corruption of his children. Judah's completely abandoned the ways of Yahweh. This can be clearly seen in the abject wickedness of his son. One commentator states that not since the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah has God taken the life of one who displeased him. And there it was, groups who were annihilated. Ur is the first individual in Scripture whom we are told Yahweh kills. This is striking. You've got to understand that as you're reading the book of Genesis, you'll hear that God is the one who gives life and God can take life. We hear that, right? We know that. We understand that. In the days of Noah, God says, people have become so corrupt that I'm going to send a flood 
and destroy all of mankind except for Noah and his family. And so everybody is killed, right? In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God looks down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, sees the corruption of those people, and he sends fire upon those cities and destroys them. So anybody who's reading the book of Genesis understands that God has the right to give life. God has the right to take life. But it would have been a shock to them to hear that this individual was so wicked, so corrupt, that the Lord killed him. Killed him. And many people, many people today will look at this and say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, right? The God of the Old Testament, he does things like that. Have you ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? The Lord struck them dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. That's what the God of the Old Testament does. The God of the Old Testament will strike somebody dead because they're evil, because they're corrupt, because they're wicked, right? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Do you understand the reason why when I'm up here or a minister's up here and they're saying, if you are not a Christian, if you do not seek to follow the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gracious kingdom... You should not partake of this. It's because in the scriptures, Paul says that there were people abusing the Lord's Supper, seeking to cause division through the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. And because of that, some people were sick and some people were falling asleep. That's a euphemism for Paul saying directly, do you know that some people have died in your church because God killed them because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. No, this is the God who gives life. This is the God who takes life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here we're told that God, the Lord, covenant God, struck her dead because he was wicked. Things have just gone from bad to worse. And for Tamar, the situation is only going to get more desperate. Ur is dead, but Tamar had no children by him. So in verse 8, Judah tells his second son, Onan, to perform the duty of the widow's brother-in-law. He says, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. This long phrase in the NIV here is actually a single Hebrew word showing that this was the standard practice even prior to the giving of the law. This refers to the Leverite law, lever meaning brother-in-law, which served to maintain the dead brother's name and inheritance. Simply put, Onan was to sleep with Tamar for the purpose of having a son that would not belong to him, but would be his dead brother, Urs. And in order to understand this, we have to understand the concept of inheritance, we have to understand the concept of a some, someone's name being carried on, being carried forward. 
And as people of Israel came into the promised land, this would be important because God promised these tribes this land. And that, that land could not go to another tribe. It could not go to another family. And so if there is a desperate situation where this particular line, this particular descendancy has been cut off, there has to be a way to repair that. There has to be a way to fix that. And the way that that was fixed is through this Leverite wall. So this would not have been strange or bizarre to them, this would have been common and an accepted practice that a man would then go and take his brother's wife to be his wife and give his brother, who's dead, children that belong to him that would carry on his name and that would receive his inheritance. So Judah is putting distance between himself and Tamar. He doesn't call her by name. He seems only concerned with ensuring there is a descendant for his son, Ur. Now, if Ur was an evil man, even though we don't know what sort of actions his wickedness consisted of, then we're told a little bit more about the wickedness of Onan. Onan is greedy. In fact, he's going to carry on what we already know about Judah. Judah didn't want to just kill his brother. He wanted to make a little bit of money from it, right? And we see that sin of greed carried on into his son's life and heart. Onan doesn't want to give Tamar a son because he knows that the seed will not belong to him and that the son would then be considered the firstborn and receive the double portion of Judah's inheritance. What you need to understand is that Ur is the firstborn, right? So Ur deserves the double inheritance. But if Ur is not alive and Ur has no descendants, then guess who gets that double inheritance? Onan. Onan would receive that double inheritance. So Onan doesn't want to give Ur a son by Tamar because then he would lose that double inheritance. But another thing about Onan is he doesn't simply say, no, I refuse to sleep with Tamar because I don't want to give Ur a son. No, he says, okay, I'll sleep with her, but not for the purpose of giving her a child, a son that could grow up and carry on the name of Ur, and a son that could be her provider and her protector. So Onan's also lustful. And what he does is he publicly obeys the law by having sexual relations with Tamar. And that is, before his father Judah, it seems as if he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Before his other brothers, it seems that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's doing the right thing. He's going in and he's sleeping with Tamar in order to give her a child. In fact, he might be going out and saying, well, it just looks like Tamar's not conceiving. Looks like she's not, uh, she's not having a child. Looks like she's just not getting pregnant. And so he's placing the, he could be placing the blame on her. And he could have done this many times with Tamar. In fact, the whenever that we read about. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife expresses the frequency of occurrences, not simply a one-time event. 
So in public, he's doing what is right, but in private, we're told that he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing an offspring for his brother. In order to deny Tamar the heir for Ur, and in doing so, rejected the promise to Abraham that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, he has no problem using Tamar for his own sexual gratification, but he will not fulfill his obligation to her or to his father. And this, of course, displeases God, who we're then told strikes own and dead, just as he did to Ur. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. And so Tamar's situation is only getting more and more desperate. So what is Judah supposed to do now? He has two sons, his firstborn and his secondborn, that have now died. Well, he knows what he should do. The Leverite law is still in effect, so his son Shelah must now fulfill his duty to bring up an heir for Ur. But what would you do if two of your sons had died in association with this woman Tamar? Well then, Judah seems to get suspicious. Maybe being concerned there is some kind of curse on Tamar. He fails to see the work of God in the deaths of his sons, saying that they, they probably deserve to die because of their wickedness, but instead he puts the blame on the woman. He's reluctant to give his only son to her, lest he die as well, as if she's the one that's causing their death rather than the covenant God, Yahweh. So he spins a lie. Sheila's too young to marry. So he tells Tamar to go back to her father's house and live as a widow until Sheila is old enough. But we get the sense that Judah has no intention of doing this. In fact, it's strange that Judah sends her off back to her father's house. Rather than saying, come into my house, you're already under my protection. You're already part of my family because you've been married to my sons. You are going to be cared for by me until Sheila gets old enough. No, actually, Judah says, go away. Go back to your father's house. You're your father's problem now. Your father has to provide for you. Your father has to care for you, not the family that you've been married into. So here's Tamar sent off to be cared for by another, out of sight, out of mind, betrothed to Sheila, thus not free to marry anyone else, stuck in limbo and tossed off, stuck in a position of mourning that she's in. Judah has essentially washed his hands of her, putting her in this position. It truly is for Tamar a situation of desperation. She leaves to go live once again in her father's house in her widow's arraignment in a perpetual funeral service until the day that Judah gives Sheila, his third son, to her in marriage. And finally, there's a deceptive solution. There's a passing of time that happens between verses 11 and 12. We don't really know how much time that is. But it's enough where Judah's Canaanite wife dies. At this point, Tamar is caught on to the injustice Judah has done to her. He's left her in an unmarriable and unprotected condition. Widows at this time who did not have sons to care for them were the marginalized of society. This is why you have the constant refrain that God desires that his people would care for the widows and the orphans, that God is a God that cares for widows and orphans. Tamar cannot marry, and Judah has no intention on giving his son Sheila to her. So when Tamar hears that Judah is finally over his morning time with his late wife, 
And he's going to be coming by her father's house on his way to this festive time of the shearing of sheep in Timnah. She puts an unorthodox plan into action. She takes off her widow's clothes, a constant visible reminder of the promise that had been given to her, which had gone unfulfilled. And she put on a veil to cover her identity and disguise herself as a cult prostitute. Temple prostitution was a common practice of the Canaanites during festive times. They believed poor performing these cultic acts would ensure the fertility of their people, land, and livestock. And so here's the shearing time of the sheep. And so here's the fruit. Here's the harvest. And so these uh, temple prostitutes would go to these events. The shearing of the sheep would be one of these events. And they would say, hey, if you come and you sleep with me, this will please our gods, and our gods will make our, our next harvest plentiful, and they will provide for us, and they will give us uh, children, and they will give us land, and they will give us livestock. And so Tamar then goes, and she waits at the entrance of Anaim for her father-in-law to walk by. And this word Anaim, the city name, means opening of the eyes, which is another foreshadowing of the eye-opening experience that Tamar's deception will function in the life of Judah. The wake-up call it will be for Judah. And Judah then sees her. And he recognizes her outfit, what she's wearing, her veil, the place that she's standing. And she takes, he, he takes her to be a prostitute and elicits her services. The biblical author wants the reader to be clear that if Judah had known it was his daughter-in-law, he would not have had relations with her as if that makes this situation better. But Tamar plays this deception perfectly. She begins to strike a deal with Judah, a prize for her services. He desires her so badly that he's even willing to give her his personal insignia, equivalent to a driver's license, a credit card, a social security number as a pledge until she receives payment. This, of course, continues to show us Judah's descent. He's much like his sons, Onan and Ur, full of greed, full of lust. So Judah went into her, and she conceived. And she got up and went back to her father's house, took off her veil, and put her widow's clothes back on, and waited. So Judah... Wanting to get his personal identification back, sends his friend to make the payment. Walkie says that he's like a reputable gentleman who unwittingly loses his credit card in a brothel. But here I cannot find the woman, and so Judah says, Well, I tried, and I don't want to be a laughing stock because my reputation is so important to me, so let's just forget about it. But three months pass, and Tamar in her widow's, clo widow's clothes begins to show. And the news carries fast. And it comes to Judah. And Judah's told, Tamar is pregnant. Because of what she's done, his family and his reputation is damaged. And he makes a quick and harsh judgment, giving no opportunity for a hearing. Burn her alive like a witch. Like the witch she is. How could she do this thing? I mean, honestly, this is really ironic. Judah is the one who has withhold justice from Tamar, but not giving Sheila in marriage to her. He is the one who is guilty of prostitution, yet he is the one pointing the finger, seeking to grasp an opportunity to get rid of this woman, 
who from his perspective is the reason his two sons are dead. And as she was being brought out to be burned, Tamar reveals the deceptive solution to the injustices she had received. She had Judah be shown his personal items, the ones that identified who it was that she was pregnant by. And just like the name of the place where he encountered her, his eyes were open. He's the father. And in that moment, we see a strange kind of repentance from Judah. The descent of Judah takes a sharp turn, and he says this of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. She is in the right. I am in the wrong. He declares his own guilt in withholding Sheila from her. And this is what we see could be called the beginning of Judah's transformation. This is his turning point. This is the point in which he turns back away from the place he was heading and joins back with his brothers. He'll show great concern for his aging father. And when they all travel to Egypt to find some food in the midst of a great and difficult hardship, a drought, and a famine... And when Joseph, seeking to see what kind of men his brothers are, will say, I have to kill Benjamin. What will Judah do? He'll offer himself in the place of his little brother. Judah begins to change in this moment. But here in this story, as strange as it might sound, as bizarre it might be to our modern Western worldview, the hero of the story is Tamar. She suffered an injustice at the hands of Judah, but she was determined to have a child in Judah's family. One commentator says, such determination to propagate descendants of Abraham especially by a Canaanite woman, is remarkable. And so despite her foreign background and her irregular behavior, Tamar emerges as the heroine of this story. A Canaanite woman who dressed up as a prostitute becomes in God's providence the one who ensures that the seed of the woman lives to fight another day against the seed of the serpent. And the last three verses of Genesis 38 express the importance of Tamar's deception. We read that she gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And Perez becomes the firstborn. Um, all I know is, I don't know how women gave birth back then, but it, to me it seems like a cartoon story almost when you hear that one baby's arm came out, which means that's probably not a comfortable pregnancy, uh, delivery. And then that one came back in, and then the other baby came out. Boy. She went through a lot. But his name will appear once again, Perez, in a genealogy in the book of Ruth, where there another kinsman redeemer and a Canaanite woman give birth to a child. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Genesis 38 is important for Israel because 
It shows how their great King David came to be. Genesis 38, although is of great importance to redemptive history, because we're told in Matthew 1 that Tamar is a foremother of Christ, named in his genealogy. And what's so interesting is that after Genesis 38, we're going to go back to the most important person in Genesis, and that is Joseph, the one that so closely typifies and points to the coming of Christ, a great redeemer, a chosen but rejected son, one that would receive humiliation, going all the way down into the grave, into the pit almost, to be risen, to be at the right hand of the king, right? Through whom he would save many people alive. Joseph is the one that seems to foreshadow, that seems to point to Christ most clearly. Yet, in later years, Joseph's descendants go to the wayside. And this man who did this horrible thing in Genesis 38 rises to prominence. And from him come kings, especially King David and King Solomon, of whom God will make a covenant with and say, there will always be a king from your family on the throne. And through whom King David and King Solomon would come, King Jesus, who would enter into this world. And through his suffering become the king of all kings and the Lord of all worlds. It's interesting to me that the biblical story does not seek to hide the messy history of the one whom the Messiah comes from. Of the one whom the great kings of Israel comes from. If this was a man's book, Genesis 38 wouldn't exist. There would be nothing but good said about Judah. His sordid past would be erased so that his condition and his glory would not be questioned. Nonetheless, this is God's book, inspired by him. And God is not ashamed to show that his son is born into this world through a family that's broken, lost, full of sin and corruption because God sent his son into this world to save those who are broken, lost, and full of corruption. See, the ultimate injustice done in Genesis 38 was not at the hands of Judah or Tamar to each other. Rather, the ultimate injustice was their own sins before a holy God. God was determined to work within that sin in order to bring into this world his son, Jesus Christ. Like I said, the one point that we can gather from Genesis 38 is that God will use sinful people to bring about his gracious purposes. So God determined to work within that sin in order to bring into this world his son, Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the head crusher. Tamar was waiting for this deliverer, the one who would bring true justice by bearing in his body the wrath of God for her sins, for Judah's sins, for our sins. This is what we have to remember. That God sent his son into the world to take on flesh that Jesus Christ may live and die in order to accomplish the atonement of our sins so that by faith in Christ, God can be both just and the justifier of sinners like us. 
like Judah. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. A timely word. A word that reminds us that for many of us, we have broken families too. Families of sordid past. And we have even in our own lives sin that we still struggle with daily. But we know, Lord, and can trust that you will even use the lives of sinful people to bring about your gracious purposes. And we see that truth alive in our own lives and hearts because we see that truth most profoundly in Jesus Christ, your Son. And through the wickedness and sin of others was sent to the cross to be crucified. Yet that crucifixion and that cross is our redemption. We ask, Lord, that we do not lose sight of that great and wonderful truth. We praise you, Lord, for this great and wonderful word that you've given to us that shows us how far you are willing to go to enter into that brokenness, that corruption, that sin, in order to redeem us in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.